I've always I always called it pop for the longest time, and then I sense. learned that it's a regional. Yeah, totally. Thing. And then and you I'm were like, like, I don't want to be from a region. <laughs> no, I hate. I actually really dislike people pop. calling it soda. I'm like, it's pop. Really? What are you talking about? Hmm. Yeah, because I was oh. judgmental asshole for a long time. <laughs> what, if, what, what if you just called soda pop? <laughs> That's too much. That's, That's an insane song, it's right? Too many, syllab- too soda many syllables. <laughs> Is it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. An NSYNC commercial for... It's an NSYNC song. Any, yeah. I'm just like... Any brand. Of drinking all these ice lying around. Okay, that does sound very familiar. TBH. <laughs> does not to me. It's okay. I feel like you might have missed the NSYNC window, Nathan. <sighs> not your language. Not my language. Unless you dated someone for whom NSYNC was their language, in which case you might have been exposed to it. But still no. Not yeah. country. That, that, no. Would require, <laughs> that would require me dating. <laughs> that was, Amen. Classic. Yeah, Welcome mumble. back to the John G Show. <laughs> dating portion. <laughs> Even though we are all married. Happily married. Happily married. You're listening to The John Chi Show, hosted by three Korean-American adoptees diving headfirst into what it means to be adopted, Korean, American, and more. And now, here's your hosts, Nathan, Patrick, and KJ. Welcome back to The John Chi Show. We're here for the interview portion of the show, and we have a very special guest today. We have Jonathan Bergstrom, who comes to us from Texas, along with KJ. We got to we got to meet you in person, so thank you for coming to the, onto the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to, to have a conversation here. We like to start all our shows off with a standard um introduction of yourself so if you would like to tell us your story with as much or as little detail as you want perfect thank you uh so i was born in 1975 uh in korea i was told um when i became conscious that i was born in the city of busan and i was born to uh, an adoptee not a korean adoptee but an adoptee in america and he actually didn't know his, his nationality um, and a Swedish mother. I was adopted to Minnesota like the 40 other thousand uh, adoptees <laughs> that came over. Um, but when after six months of being in America, my parents moved to Ohio. So I actually don't claim to be a Minnesotan. Midwest. Yep. <laughs> Good old uh, Stowe, Ohio. And so moving there, um, my parents were told by Holt to Americanize me. And I don't know if that was common with most adoptees in that era, but they were told not to expose me to any Asian culture at all. They were told, they were told to make me as American as possible. Wow. Um, so I, I went to, a, so my dad's a, a minister, so very religious, uh, strict home. We, I did, grew up without a TV. I wasn't allowed to listen to any music outside of Christian music like Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith, and if you're, yeah, you know, Michael W. Smith, names. yeah, yeah. What do you even need besides those two artists? Friends yeah. are friends maybe, forever. Yeah. <laughs> maybe you can sneak in the fray. <laughs> no, that had a drum. <laughs> so at the end of the day, I was pretty culturally uh, put in a bubble. You know, American, uh, Christian. I uh, wasn't really exposed to any other cultures. Um, went to a public school. However, my public school was very, very white. Um, so in kindergarten, my family moved to New Jersey, which you would think would be a little more diverse, um, except the town I grew up in was like 98% Italian. So most of my friends were Italian-Americans. I did have one other token Chinese person in my, in my school. Um, and we actually became friends. Ironically, but that was about the extent of my Asian culture uh, throughout elementary school. Um, so then, again, moving on to uh, junior high, I moved to Colorado. So my dad being a minister, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with how ministers work, but they move churches every five, six years. So our church moved to uh, Colorado Springs, right down the street from you, uh, Nathan. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, 
Um, went to a public school there as well. This was a little more diverse. Um, and that's when you start developing friend groups. The majority of my friends were minorities. So in a school of about 6,000 or sorry, uh, 1,600 students, there was about 50 total minorities uh, of all races. And we kind of hung out together. That was our little clique. And that kind of goes back to identity and not knowing what it meant to be a Korean, not knowing what it meant to be a Korean adoptee and trying to find uh, my identity in those friend groups, whether that be in the Italians with it uh, during elementary school uh, to in high school, most of my friends were African-American or Mexican. So identifying with the African-American culture, one of the, the, the caveats I'll say, and I think similar to you, Patrick, I played uh, sports in, in high school. So that's how the majority of my friendships grew out of. And ironically, the top athletes in my high school were usually out of the 40 minorities in the high school. Not me. I wasn't one of the top athletes. <laughs> Unfortunately, I was not included in that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, played, uh, I played basketball, football, and ran track. Oh, same as me. Yep. All right. So... Yeah, I was I was on the teams, but I was never the star. The St. Colorado Springs has the Olympic Training Center. And I was uh, never visiting there because that's <laughs> well out of my league. <laughs> um, but that's how I found my way into finding acceptance with people. So my, my acceptance was more related to shared interests than it was to the, my racial identity or cultural identity, so to speak. Fast forward to college, I went to a small little Bible college. And I, the backstory behind why I went to the small little Bible college is because I wanted to play football in college. And being a 5'8", 150-pound Asian guy, you're not going to go play Division One anywhere. So it was a small little Division Three school in, in Minnesota. I would return to my roots. And just so an advice for anyone out there looking to go to school, don't pick a school because you want to play small town football. That was not a good choice. Um, the school that I went to was actually more strict than my, my parents' house. Uh, growing up as a pastor's kid, um, we couldn't play cards. We couldn't dance. You weren't allowed to have TVs in your room. There was no girls ever allowed. I mean, it was really, really strict. <laughs> there were no you weren't girls allowed ever. to dance. No, not the no dance. dancing. Nope. No dancing. Is this a footloose city? <laughs> yeah, so I uh, I picked up are, the are game called Bacon? Rook. <laughs> yeah, I am. I, no, does it look? <laughs> yeah, so it was certainly an adjustment getting there, and I soon realized that playing football didn't outweigh being really bored and feeling rebellious, and definitely not fitting in because it was it was a majority white school. Now there was about uh, fifty Hmong. And ironically, uh, my first girlfriend in college was a Hmong girl. And uh, that was the first girl I'd ever dated that was um, not white. And that was interesting because it was the first time I was really, truly exposed to any non-American culture in my life. Ironically, most of the Hmong people thought I was just a really tall Hmong person because being 5'8", it's very tall for that. So they'd come to speak to me in Hmong and I'd be like, I have no idea what you're saying. But ultimately, they accepted me until I stopped dating the Hmong girl. And then the whole culture kind of shut me out again. So um, the positive is I, I made some good friends um, that I still have today uh, from college. Probably still the closest friends I have uh, today are from my, my, that college. I ended up dropping out of school after my sophomore year and going to Colorado Christian University. That was interesting because after having been in at that point, 20 years of really strict rules and very difficult to have access to anything that would be, you know, partying or anything like that. All of that was very accessible. And so I made a lot of bad decisions and ended up failing out of school in Colorado um, just because I don't think I was ready for a couple of things. One is wanting to fit in and then also letting my cult, the, the people around me affect my actions and not being independent and um, just following the crowd. So I ended up moving back to Minnesota and finishing up my degree there because that's where the only credits I had that were passing <laughs> and uh, graduated. And then I met my wife um, through mutual friends. My wife is, her name is Amanda. She's also a Korean adoptee. Um, and we met at, at her birthday party, ironically. And she had just gotten back from Korea. 
uh, teaching English there for a year. And uh, we hit it off immediately because she wanted to talk about Korea and I wanted to learn about Korea because I had not had any exposure to Korea at all. And it was pretty cool to, hey, you're a Korean adoptee. I had never met another Korean adoptee in my life uh, up to that point. So I was 20, 24 years old. Um, other than my sister, sorry, I do have a, an adopted sister, but um, we had not met uh, anyone else outside of my family. Um, so we headed off and uh, got married eight months, or got engaged eight months later and married uh, 13 months or eight months after that. She's going to kill me for not knowing the dates. <laughs> We are now married, uh, lived in Minnesota for a while, and have recently moved to Texas. With that said, I'd had never been back to Korea, so I recently went back uh, with a tour called the Mosaic Tour. Two years ago was the first time I went back, and that was life-changing for me because it's the first time, I guess, with my wife and being uh, having a shared experience with her, a Korean adoptee, We've had some bonding, but it was the first time I'd met perfect strangers that had uh, the this, this similar experience. The tour itself, what we did on the tour was amazing. Uh, but I think what was most amazing was the connection with the 25 other Korean adoptees. So yeah, it was. it's really hard to put into words what the impact what it is because it feels like it was the first time where I found my place in the world. Mm. I told my wife when I got back, I haven't cried that much since... My dog died when I was a kid. So after I got back from Korea last year um, on the Mosaic Tour, it was a hard transition because it almost felt like summer camp. You're there with 25 other people and you have no responsibilities. I was there for 22 days. Even family responsibilities weren't there. So just kind of on my own. And then coming back again to the real world was, was kind of a shock. And I, I think I went through, I, don't, I, I hate the word depression. I went through kind of just a, a lull, a life lull. Like, mm -hmm. this is my life. I wake up, do work, you know, I take kids to school, you know, do the father thing. And not, I'm not saying that's bad. It's just contrasting that to what Korea was. It was really hard to, to, to ramp back up. So uh, that winter, I was, um, had the fortunate opportunity to be um, asked to be a, a volunteer for the, this year's Mosaic Tour, which it was... The easy, one of the easiest answers I've ever made in my life was, yes, I would love to do it again. It was definitely a different experience. One of the main ones was it was in uh, May this year. So it was a way cooler. We weren't sweating like a dog all summer. <laughs> <laughs> and then secondly, it was really, I, I almost feel like it was more impactful emotionally for me because I could see people grow and discover themselves during the process externally. As opposed to kind of finding my way on my own the first year, I could see from day one to day 10, the transformation that happened in people's lives and then the community that was built. And, and being a volunteer, you kind of tried to relay like this is what's going to happen, but no one really understands that till you experience it. And it was really cool to see that happen. But coming back, I think this year has been harder than even last year was in terms of feeling any belonging here in my current job, whatever, in America, finding any motivation, feeling, finding any meaning in stuff that I do. And a lot of that's related to work. I mean, I'm not saying anything about my family. I love my family and I love the situation we're in there, but it's more related to like, what's my life goal? Like, what's my purpose beyond being a father and a husband? So unfortunately, I feel like I'm still in that law. I think I got over it pretty quickly last year, uh, maybe a couple months, but I mean, I'm now seven months coming back and I still feel unsettled. Uh, like, you know how you get the flu and you feel like you can never be comfortable. It just feels oh, like yeah, that's my like whole body. You just can't quite kick it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, I can't figure out what, what the, what the answer is, but it's, I'm certainly searching and would love to get rid of that, that feeling. And there's certainly other factors that are probably contributing to my, um, I don't know if it's even anxiety, but just the feeling of no direction. So yeah, that's where I'm at right now. Um, I want to go back to Korea uh, every year. I don't plan on going back with a Mosaic tour next year if I'm asked. Uh, I mean, that's assuming I get asked, so I'm not even going to make that assumption. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean that presumptuous. But um, I do want to go back uh, on my own or with my family. Um, we've taken the kids there uh, two years ago after Mosaic tour. We we stayed with our our family. I met up with my family and we we spent a week. 
So that was, and they love it. My son wants to go back and study in Korea. He's a senior in high school. So he's definitely caught the, the Korean itch, so to speak. <laughs> I mean, we all have. We all want to go back to Korea. It's been that meaningful. So I'll give you a story. Today, I went out um, to H Mart and got some snacks for <laughs> tasting today. And uh, I picked up lunch for my wife and I at a Korean little stall at the, uh, at the H Mart. And it was so... While I was waiting for my food, I talked to these Ashimas for like 15 minutes. It felt so comfortable just to talk about Korea and talk about being a Korean American. And it just felt really like my place. And that's hard to find um, at work or in my family even. So, uh, Just a personal question. Which H Mart did you go to? Um, I went to the one in Plano. <laughs> oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. I didn't know Do you have experience closer. with that at the Plano H Mark, AJ? I don't think I have experience with that one since it's reopened. I think I went before it did the whole the whole business. But the Carrollton one is much closer for me. So that's what I was like, I was asking. That's where we, the four of us, have collective experience probably is the Carrollton <laughs> H Mart. Yeah. So. And Carrollton H Mart's a super H Mart. So I think it's like double the size. Ooh. That was a oh, pretty big one. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it I, is a super H-Mart. That's awesome. I didn't even know they had that term. I know super targets and super Walmarts, but <laughs> they actually call it a super H-Mart? Is that actually a term? Because that's huge. I think so. It is a huge one. I mean, it has a food court, which I was very jealous of. Yeah. I think it's called Super H-Mart. I, I, like, I'm trying to picture the sign out front that says Super H-Mart, and I can picture it saying just H-Mart, and I can also picture it saying... Super H Mart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Jonathan, thank you for sharing all that, the details of your growing up period and moving around from state to state. Uh, I had one question, I guess, from back when you were um, starting to um, find a little bit of community in the diversity crowd, I guess, of the of the high school. How, how did you identify while you were in that group? Did you, when people asked you, did you say you were Korean, Korean American, Korean adoptee? And how do you identify, I guess, specifically right now? I would tell people I was Korean, but I had no idea what that meant. Mm. I mean, it, they, oh, are you from North or South? Well, I'm from South. Well, what does that mean? Or I actually told people I was born in Seoul because I didn't even look at my paperwork. I, yeah. That's the only city I knew. I wasn't even born in Seoul. And I'd be like, yeah, I'm from Seoul. But yeah, people would ask me, have you been back? You know, I'd be like, I don't even know what the food looks like or tastes like. I don't know anything about Korea at all. So that would really kind of end the conversation right away. And I mean, mentally, I, I identified mentally more as African-American than I did Korean. Mm -hmm. I mean, to this day, uh, I know how to cook soul food more than I know how to cook Korean food. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I hear you. Yeah, no, I was just curious because you said your wife was the first Korean adoptee that you had met. Yeah. And I mean, I can't, I, I think I had met a few back in high school too, but never, never to the point where you know, I, other than my sister, I never to the point where I had like conversations about it. So, um, yeah, I, I would, I don't know. I would just not move into that, uh, you know, quickly. I would do the same thing. I would say I was, you know, Korean, Yeah. but, uh, yeah. Yeah. I can really resonate with when you say like you, you identified or told people you're Korean, but you didn't know what it meant to say that. Like I felt I, I did the same thing. Mm -hmm. Like I would be like, one of my nicknames was literally the Korean in high school. <laughs> and like, it was less of a nickname and more of a factual statement. Exactly. Yeah. But it wasn't, I mean, but we just said it was a nickname. Um, and it was just like, when I was sharing that with people, when I think about it now, it's like, I didn't really understand what that meant. I just said it, like you said, to kind of end the conversation. Yep. I didn't have to go any further because any follow-up question I had no answer to. So I can totally resonate with that navigation of identity in that way um i had a question about when you first when you came back after your first trip you said that you know it really affected like it impacted you at an internal level and you said that you had you felt like you cried more after when you first came back from that trip than you ever had in your life um you also said that you had first met your wife when she had first returned from korea so I was wondering, you know, you obviously have, were able to have conversations with her leading up to your own trip about her experience. What were your conversations with her like once you came back and were able to express what that trip was for you? How were you 
how did you two navigate that conversation? How did she help you in that? How did she support you in that? Or what was that like for you? Well, her experience was a little bit different than mine because she was teaching English in Korea for 13 months. She doesn't, she didn't learn Korean at all when she was there. When she was there, everyone wanted to speak English to her. So she didn't mm. necessarily, and she was there with, with other white people. So she wasn't there even with Koreans. It was basically a 13 month vacation with her friends uh, from America. Cause she went with her best friend and taught mm. uh, for a year. So they were roommates. Um, they did everything together. With that said, I, so I don't think our experiences were in terms of personally finding my identity. I don't think she could relate to that because I don't think she has, I mean, she made an interesting comment to me just a, a year ago. I told her, what do you identify as? And she says, I identify as a middle-class white woman. And I'm like, mm. that's what you identify as? He goes, yeah, that's, I'm a middle-class white woman. Like, you're not though. And she's like, well, you can't tell me who what I identify as. <laughs> it is what it is. So I still think we, we don't have as many shared experiences as you think might have been because we both experienced time in Korea. I think the difference is the connection I made with other adoptees and our shared conversations. I mean, we would have group sessions that would go, you know, two, three hours long, just deep dives into, into people's backgrounds and experiences and being able to be just completely open and in, in a really safe space. I don't think my wife has ever been there. Well, I think it's tough too, because like, so my wife also taught in Korea just for a month uh, to teach English. Uh, and so she had a picture at like, I don't know, tell us about yourself, right? So she had a picture of me um, and they were like, all of her students were really excited that she was dating a Korean person. But I think like if they, and they were like middle, middle school age. And so I think if they were able to communicate effectively that like I was adopted, they'd be like, oh, but like, I don't think they would get it. But I think if they met me, they'd be really disappointed that I wasn't more Korean, <laughs> like, like from the nation of Korea. Uh, and I, I feel like I've heard a couple of other um, Korean adoptees who have gone back to Korea to teach English. And they've been like, oh, I thought like part of the excitement was like, I thought that was going to meet an American. Like I thought like a white American or maybe a black American, but a, a a Korean, I understand who you are, but then if you're adopted, you're like, well, now I don't understand who you are, but I'm just kind of disappointed. And yeah. so it's like, it can be like overall a disappointing thing, but I think it is unique and powerful that you went to Korea and were with adoptees. I'm curious, what was the, like, when you think about that first trip, um, I'm sure that if you were, if you were to give yourself 10 seconds, uh, there would be a whole rush of emotions what was like, what's the prevailing feeling when you think about that first trip? I know that you said you cried a lot, but like, was it just the, was it that, that sense of belonging or like feeling whole? Is that accurate to what you were, what you experienced? No, I think it was more being able to connect with my feelings. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you exactly the first time I cried, we sat down the first opening session and everyone's introducing themselves. Hi, I'm. John, I'm from Texas. And then we were supposed to say what we're excited for. And, and bear in mind, coming up to that, to the actual trip, we'd have uh, phone calls and, and, you know, here's what you need to expect. And, you know, and that whole time, um, I was thinking more of like a vacation. So I started out saying, I'm Jonathan, I'm from Texas. I'm excited to eat the food and meet the people and, you know, experience, go shopping and, you know, experience the culture, just the typical like vacation experience yeah and i vividly remember i'm getting chills even saying this vividly remember pausing and thinking and i want to meet my mom mm -hmm. and then just breaking down like like at that moment was such a, a huge turning point for me to be able to accept my background accept being a korean adoptee like i don't think it was acceptable in my mind to be a korean adoptee up until that moment because I'd always, people would ask me before the trip, do you want to see your mom? Like, ah, if I do, I do, no big deal. Because I think I was, I was kind of looked down, looking down on myself for being an adoptee. Like it wasn't something I was proud of. It was something I'd kind of want to bury and just hide away. But at that moment, it was like, no, I, I, I do. And, and that just ramped up the whole trip to, to why I'm here and what this trip means to me. And it became more integrated with my soul as opposed to just in my head. 
Yeah. So that was a huge, huge moment. Yeah. So you said that growing up, your your adoptive family was told to just like Americanize you and and do all of that. And on top of that, growing up in um, in a Christian home in a super sequestered, secluded, uh, sheltered, sheltered, that's what, that's what I'm yeah. looking for, sheltered environment. Uh, I totally get that. Like now that I'm not as much in that space, I'm like, oh, look at all this music that I missed from the time that I was young and I don't know any of it. Yeah. Um, did you, were you ever curious about Korea growing up? Were there ever any types of conversations um, by your parents or, or starting from you about any of that that were just like, or was it just like, no, we just don't, we just don't talk about it. Just move on. Yeah, don't think about it. So I'll, I'll share a couple of stories that are related to that topic. So um, my parents would take us out for Chinese food occasionally. We'd go to have sweet and sour chicken and and buy Chinese food, like American Chinese food. Um, and my mother recently told me that she felt guilty for taking our family to Chinese food because it was exposing us to Asian culture. Um, mm. And it wasn't even like the right culture, which is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> um and then uh, secondly, like I think my dad being adopted and his adoption was pretty rough. That kind of made talking about adoption not very open. Like th- my parents would say, yeah, you're adopted, but never about the history. Um, and I actually, my parents went to Korea for two weeks when I was uh, a freshman in high school and didn't bring me and my sister, left us at home and then came back from Korea and... I remember vividly saying, my mom saying, oh, the food was so bad. Like, oh, there's such a dirty culture. Oh, you know, just dogging Korea. Uh, mm, and maybe yeah. maybe she said things positive, but what stuck to me was how negative, what a negative experience Korea was. She's like, uh, we ended up just eating at the hotel because they had American food. Like we weren't going to try the street food. Like it was just, and that made me like, oh, I don't, I guess Korea sucks. I guess being Korean sucks. Like, I don't want to be anything part of that. Like, I don't want to be, you know, I get made fun of like, oh, you're crazy dog. You know, you'd hear that. Well, then it just keeps perpetuating the stereotype in my mind of what it means to be a Korean. And I don't want to be that. So I'm going to go find a culture that's acceptable and that will accept me at the same time. And that happened to be African-American and, 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 and in some cases white, absolutely too. So just not not Korean, not Asian. Yeah. So when you got to Korea the first time, what was your impression of the country? Oh, I, I was in my mind telling my mom, you have no idea what you're talking about. Like, I've had a great relationship with my parents, my adopted parents. They've always, I felt like they've loved me and supported me. I think the trip to Korea has jaded my perspective mm. on on their, and I'm again, I don't want to be personal here, but... I don't blame them, but they messed up. Almost some some bitterness about Korea is this great. And you had me thinking it was a, a dump my whole life. I was shocked how amazing Korea is. I mean, Seoul, you name it, Daegu, Busan, you know, every city I went to is amazing in their own way. And the food just makes me laugh today. My mom saying how bad the food was like, every night it was an amazing you know second third (laughs) dinner at four o'clock in the morning yeah it was so great so after you met your wife um and you guys talked a little bit more about uh korean culture and just her experiences as well did you start exploring food at that time as well did you start eating more korean food or were you doing a little bit of that before prior to that yeah she definitely opened up my eyes to that yeah i had not had korean food previous to us meeting so she um you know probably once a week we'd go out for Korean food. We became breakfast at a restaurant up in Minnesota that, you know, we ended up uh, becoming friends with the owner and she's the ones that actually got us handbooks for our wedding. Um, Mm. But yeah, we were regulars. You wore handbooks for your wedding. Yeah. Mine was pink. I didn't get to pick the color, but I was like, really? That (laughs) one? (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, so I jumped head first. I mean, I think I was ready at that point. um, Mm -hmm. I was mature enough. You know, I was late 20s. Um, I was looking to settle down, hence why I was, you know, married so quickly after we met. Um, and I was just mature enough and un, not narcissistic at that point to think, like, I need to experience some new things. I know we met you at uh, our live event in Dallas two years ago. Um, before also, I guess, meeting you at that point, um, 
Yeah, but that was right after you had been to the Korea tour the first time. Yes. Right. Um, prior to that, had you done much uh, diving into the adoptee community with your wife, uh, looking around? Because I know there's a small group in Dallas, but uh, did you do any of that in, say, Minnesota or or anywhere else? A funny thing is, we we when we first started dating, we started going to a bunch of cat events in Minnesota. Oh, okay. But after we started, we got engaged and you know got married and had kids. We started to realize that. And I don't mean to offend any of the CAD groups that ever listened to this in Minnesota. It turned out to be like a singles group. Like it was basically <laughs> like a place to pick up other single adoptees. Mm. Um, so we kind of stopped getting invited to stuff and because we had kids and, you know, we were married and kind of outside of that. And after that, we kind of moved out of that community altogether. Um, now we did have, we did meet a Korean, native Korean family that ended up being my son's best friend. Their kid was my son's best friend. So um, they take us to Korean restaurants and cook Korean food for us. So that kind of built the the curiosity there. Um, now in Texas, uh, yeah, we we certainly have, we have a smaller community. I think there's about fifty, maybe seventy five, um, and we attend as many events as we can, which is probably once every other month. We'll go to dinner or meet someone. So unfortunately, the majority of them are women. So my wife is a lot closer with a lot of them than than I am, um, but. Uh, what is it? Ten to one, females versus males that were adopted. So, the odds are. Yeah, well, I was actually going to ask you about that too. So, I know you went to the um, the Mosaic tour two years ago. Um, I had heard about this year's tour um, from my friend Lana, who I, you might have met. She was one of the yeah the ones that went. Lovely. Hi, um, Lana. I know you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> I I had heard that it was mostly women on the tour as well. Is that how was that when you went two, two years ago? Yeah. Was it mostly women as well? Both tours were. Okay. Both tours were. Yeah. Like 25 women and three guys. And then last year was maybe 24 women and four guys. And I think that's pretty common just in terms of a ratio. Well, I think that definitely from a statistic standpoint, but I also think that there is this emotional stereotype at play when it comes to male adoptees or just males in general having these types of conversations. So when we started the show, like we've been told enough, like when we started the show, we were like, do we need three cis dudes talking about stuff and like leading conversations? Is that really what America or just anybody in general needs right now? And we've been affirmed a few different times by um, folks in the community who have been doing this work for a long time, talking about how um, in the adoptee community in general, there are very few men who come out and have these types of conversations. And I think it's really necessary for us to be able to find our way into that because in Western culture specifically, it's like it's been heavily stigmatized for a long time for males to be emotional in any capacity. I know that I was really emotional as a kid when I was growing up and got made fun of it all the time, got told that I was overly sensitive, all of these different things. And for whatever reason, I just continued to lean into that. But I was ostracized and made to feel like that was the wrong, I was wrong for feeling that way. And I know after having conversations with other people and just learning more about the way our culture operates that that it, I'm, I'm not the only person that felt that way and then was put in that corner. Yeah, And so I think, even with these opportunities to go about going on these tours, like especially with my Indiana group here um, of Asian adoptees, like there are male adoptees who are a little bit older who just either didn't know about the opportunity or felt like they weren't allowed to talk about this. And while there might be more women in our group, like there, when, when guys find their way to the group, it's an oper- It's like the first time they feel like they even have permission yeah. to start having that conversation. And so I think that it, it, it's just an interesting dynamic of having to figure out, are we even allowed to have this conversation? And then realizing, oh, we are, and we should be the whole time. Yeah. And then being supported and empowered by other dudes or other people in that space who are doing that, like yourself, you know, starting to talk about it. Um. Did you feel like when you, you know, you, you said you were in that lull period mm-hmm. after that first trip coming back and then carrying over into the second trip and even still now a little bit of a disconnect. 
even though you had found like, I don't know if it's a wholeness, but an acceptance of that identity piece. Mm-hmm. Um, did you notice in your other groups of adoptees, were, were there any other males operating in that space? Any other guys that you felt like, oh, I'm starting to see more people come into this and own it and that you were able to start having conversations with? Not males at all. I mean, even in the one here in, in Texas, I think there's four that I've met. And the, and the one thing that I feel like is has been a, made, a big issue with connecting is because in Korea, we're all kind of at the same place, you know, open to talking and, and open to being open. Not everyone, even in the adaptive group in Texas, at least, is in that same place. We're all at different points of our journey. And so being able to find that connection and openness, whether it's from a male or a female uh, in local adoptees has, has been a challenge. Um, so a lot of just surface, you know, talk, not the, the connections I made in Korea. Do you feel, do you feel like you can have those conversations more openly, even with, if it's just with anybody else? Absolutely. I'm ready to talk to anyone that wants to listen for sure. And that goes back to um, that moment in Korea where I said, the reason I'm here is to find my mom. That was a huge turning point. Like I, I think I became more curious, more proud, more confident about talking about that type of stuff and, and being okay with being open and vulnerable. Because like you said, growing up as a male in America, you're taught to kind of bury it. And that's what I have done my whole life, right? Um, in the inverse of you, Patrick, uh, yeah, I, I was always a tough guy, right? I'm just the guy talking trash and acting Oh, masculine. I was talking shit. Okay. I was, I was just crying about it afterwards. Okay. I was also crying into my pillow, okay? so Crying when, when they call this bluff. <laughs> yeah. Now, I had a guy tell me he was going to kick my ass back to China. And I told him, well, if you're going to oh, kick God. my ass, make sure you kick me to the right country. I'm Korean. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, what yeah. the F are you talking about? <laughs> like, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> yeah, you'd be like, I don't know. What if I kicked your ass to Africa? How would you like that? You probably wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, he was really big. He was really big. I wasn't going to yeah. say that. <laughs> she's like, I'm just, I'm just talking geography, okay? Yeah. No, I think it's 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 interesting. I know that you said that going to Korea was kind of like a summer camp experience for you for the length of time. But I think what you have highlighted as well is the the adoptees who find themselves at conferences, on tours, on the podcast, <laughs> you know, whatever. I think that actually probably with the exception of our podcast, uh, but on those kind of those big moments, whether it's a conference or a tour or, or whatever, um, they come with a specific mindset and, and a, a specific type of willingness to let go, to jump in, to on some level be influenced by their surroundings and, and by the people in the group and all of that. And especially I think if you couple that with travel Couple that with international travel. Couple that with um, you know going back to your birth country. Then I think it it creates a really unique moment to have those conversations. And and what's more difficult then is finding the people who are willing to have those conversations on some level, day in and day out. Um, and I and I love actually that in your in your guest form. Uh, as you're applying, you're like, I don't know. I don't really have words to ex- exper- express what I experienced in Korea, which is not like a, just a shining endorsement of me being on a podcast where I have to use words. But <laughs> but I really love that because it's so it it is so indicative of um, the time that you were raised in. And like, I was just reminded of like th- this idea of not having words. And my one of my old bosses being like, Oh, millennials these days, I always say like, I feel like, and I feel like, and I feel like, and I was like. Yeah, and but uh, but it just reminded me of how important things like little tools, uh, like the feelings wheel, can be. Where it's like I I have feelings, and if I've not practiced looking literally at some vocab words and and expressing myself 
then it's hard for me to figure out how to express myself. And that's one of the things that um, on the show that we have really tried to, or I have really tried to focus in on is how can we continue to give language to each other? And I think Patrick, to your point, highlighting that, I mean, we have the privilege of, in this case, being um, four adoptees in different, almost decades, I think of, of our adoption and, and birth orders and things within the spectrum of, uh, Korean adoption and where both Korea and America were at a time. Like it's just, it's a, it's an interesting privilege and, and thing to consider about that language. Having been to Korea twice now and kind of been in and out of adoptee spaces more, what's like the the main theme, uh, like some, some language that is really resonating with you at the moment. Community. One of the outcomes of the trip was finding community and realizing I didn't really have that before the trip. I think there's a difference in my mind between like a friend group and community and how important community was. And so obviously 25 people, I'm not going to be great friends with everyone on the trip, but I felt community with all the whole, both tours. Um, unlike I've had, you know, I used to go to church, right? That was community um, to a certain extent, but not to the extent of, of what the Korea trips have been. I think another word was word, another <laughs> set of words. I thought that is, was the word. Yeah. <laughs> the word. <laughs> word. Was just finding, like finding myself, like, Unlike people describe it or typically think of, I found myself like it's really, it's, it's beyond that. It's, it's, it's finding, it's being proud of yourself as well. It's taking proud of your identity and finding your identity. I mean, I think I thought I had my identity. Like I didn't, I guess before the tour, you would ask me, Hey, do you know who you are? Yeah, I know who I am. I'm blah, you know, Karina, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> But I don't think I actually knew what that meant until I went on the tour. So it's like actually discovering what it meant by the words you were saying before the tour. Like, this is what it means. Mm. And I think what was really, uh, actually something occurred to me pretty free, or recently is like our identity as Korean adoptees, male Korean adoptees, we are a, a rare breed and, and almost a dying breed. Um, I went to an event, a Korean adoptee event, and I noticed that majority of the people at the event were older. I'm like, there's no 20-something Korean adoptees here. Like, we are all late 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, and feeling sad about that. Because I think part of coming back from Korea, like, it's I'm proud to be a Korean adoptee. I'm going to tell everyone about it. This is, this is great. And then realizing that we're about, we're about it that's going to be able to, to say that. For the good and the bad. I know there's controversy about the whole adoption process in general, but, you know, for me, it is what it is. I'm an adoptee, uh, you know, so I just have to own it. But it was sad. Think about we're going to be it. 40 years from now, 50 years from now, we're going to be like a history book notation, mm -hmm. which is sad. So I guess it, that's a million words. <laughs> no, I think I really appreciate you, you know, naming that and stating that. I will say that as small as the numbers out of Korea are currently like there are still like i will tell you I've, i was actually just talking about this with someone today um that there are like some like 10 8 10 year old korean adoptees walking around with families in indianapolis i see them on the street hmm. so um i but i can definitely resonate with like this idea of pride and i love to hear you talk about like finding acceptance in your identity because for me and how I would describe it is like acceptance is so key and so powerful because it goes beyond even just accepting yourself to being able to like love yourself. And I don't know if that's might be the way that you describe it, but for me, like when I found acceptance, like that's when I found self love. Mm -hmm. And it's like, not only could I claim this identity as something that I am, could be proud of or could talk about openly and know what I was talking about, but also that like, I was able to start loving myself in a way that I never had yeah. in the past. And so like, that's a really powerful thing. And we want to like, when we find that and we are part of this like unique niche specific community, like we want to see other people feel that. 
And I think the beautiful thing about it is, and maybe not beautiful again to, to the, the controversial aspects of adoption and, and the system and industry that it's a part of, is that, you know, we are a part of like Korean adoptees are part of the Asian adoptee community, which is just a part of this larger global community of adoptees. And what resonates beyond even just our ethnic group is the way that we find identity, the way that we find acceptance, the way that we find self-love and the like, the fact that you're able to start sharing and articulating and telling your story and that you want to do that doesn't just resonate within the Korean adoptee community, but will resonate beyond that. And I think that's the powerful, beautiful thing because at the end of the day, we're just now starting to really see like kids books that are available that tell the story from the adoptee perspective written by adoptees, written by Korean adoptees. And those things are going to be there, not just for Korean or Asian adoptees to see themselves in, but for people that go through that experience to see themselves in for kids that are like, Oh, I'm not part of the, I was brought into this family through a really weird, strange, random process. And I feel other. And like some of these resources and things that are being created right now are going to be there for them too. Yeah. And it, and like, I think that's the beauty of it. it extends beyond that. Yeah. And so um, I just want to say all that because I appreciate you being able to come on here and, and share your story and in the, in the desire to want to do that. Yeah. I think that's a really powerful thing. Um, you talked about like, even now that you've been back a second time, there's still a little bit of that, like, unsettled i think is what you said there's a little bit of that unsettlement it's worse Um, now it's worse now than last year so in that vein what is next for you like not only addressing that but just in your own journey like where do you go next to for for jonathan bergstrom where does jonathan bergstrom go next on this path that's a great question that i i lose sleep over at night Mm. i mean I, i nathan told me earlier that you quit your job and patrick and you know, you started a new career of speaking and podcasting and so forth. Like that was inspirational. Wouldn't recommend it. That was- <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, that was really inspirational for me to hear. Like, that's pretty cool that you did that. Um, and then the counterpoint would be like, I still have to feed my kids. Like, right. yeah. how does that balance? Um, Cause I don't have the ability to, you know, podcast and, and, I'm not articulate for a public speaker or anything like that. So what, what's my niche <laughs> that I can pursue? And actually, you know, part of it is just stepping back and be like, what do I actually want to do? Like how, what do I want to do? And I'm going to be selfish, right? So what do I want? How do I want to finish out my days? I've spent, I'm almost 50 years old, 50 years doing what other people want me to do. What do I want to do? Um, and I'm not, I'm not necessarily a people pleaser, but I'm definitely like, want to fit in. So what are the people doing end up being what I want to do? So what's, what do I want to do? So, you know, there's different things, whether it be switching careers or finding new hobbies that are affordable, like travel the world would be a great hobby. I can't afford it. (laughs) Being Anthony Bourdain would be a great career, but I can't do that. Um, I don't know. I wish I had an answer. I'm looking. Um, if everyone has any great ideas, DM me on Instagram and, uh, and shoot me some ideas because I'm open because it's, it's been a struggle. Like, like just the mundane, mundane every day, doing the same thing that you don't like just so I can jump on Instagram and scroll until I fall asleep. Like that routine just is, um, ready to be done with it. Um, yeah, well, and it can be so life draining. Um, but at the same time you're like, but I've experienced something so life giving. How do I, how do I go to there? more often how can i experience that more often no i and i think it's really it's difficult and i I know i know i know exactly what it's like to feel like i want something more more is maybe not the right word but i want something different and it feels selfish to ask and i think what what i think a lot of adoptees who are kind of in this whether you want to call it post-apocalyptic, fully conscious, out of the fog, whatever space that that we're in, when you've had kind of that like that moment that really changes your whole worldview or changes your paradigm, it's really hard then to say, well, I want to pursue this 
and it feels selfish and it doesn't have to be selfish. Like there is a, there is a, a needle to thread um, or a line to walk where I think that, that figuring out what it is and, and how you can achieve that, whether that's through hobbies or that's through a career change, you know, whatever, where you can do that and be good to yourself, be loving to yourself and also still be good to your family and still be loving to your family and, and all those kinds of things. And, and I think that that's where a lot of, for lack of a better term, a lot of the rest of us find ourselves is, uh, it's just like, I don't know, I've had this life changing event, but I still have mouths to feed. I still have a job that I'm responsible for and relationships and, I don't know what the state is with my adoptive family necessarily because I'm still, I guess, like everything is in turmoil (laughs) and I'm just figuring it out. Uh, But yeah, I definitely, I hear you. And I think that 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 space that you're in resonates with so many people. Um, And I think it is always a good thing to pursue uh, knowing yourself more fully to and to know yourself well uh, and then to love yourself well. So yeah. we wish you the best of luck on that. Um, and if you, the listener, are sliding into Jonathan's DMs with any ideas, go ahead and slide into the John T. Show DMs as well. But in the meantime, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, <laughs> we are going to be eating a snack. Uh, I saw Jonathan pull out a bag, but I don't know what we're pulling out of our box. So we're going to find out. Here is that break right now. Welcome back to the John Chi Show. What? <laughs> it just seemed like you forgot what you were doing there for a second. You're like, oh, wait, that's like you. He was looking something <laughs> up. I could see him on his other screen looking something up. I was. Yeah. I was looking up our snack. So we are back. Uh, this is our snack snack portion, hence my uh, snack research, last minute research here. Um, we are diving into a uh, Haiti. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, just, I always want to pronounce it differently, but we used to say high tie and um but it's a ace chocolate biscuit and I know Jonathan you got uh I think more of an almond biscuit cracker. Yes. Um but uh I can tell that my package is completely crumbed. Oh no, I'm <laughs> sorry. Well, I got put packing peanuts here. in there, so I don't know. All I but know is it's got chocolate in my cookies. In it. I thought I did. I thought I put some packing stuff in there. What are you reading there, KJ? What does it say on the product? Other than it says sand ace chocolate biscuit. Damn. Uh, oh, you were. Yeah, it's so. Oh, the, yeah. The, the name of the brand or the product is sand ace. Sand ace. And then chin choco. So something about chocolate. I was actually reading the hashtags on the front where it says sand, hashtag sand ace and then hashtag chincho Chinchoko Kurim and hashtag Basakan Sende. But I don't know. I was trying to figure out if the middle one was like Konglish, but I don't think it is. It's just something about chocolate and cream. I mean, it looks like a like just two saltine crackers. crackers. Yeah, Ritz crackers pushed together with some chocolate in the middle. Um, I don't know. Jonathan, what does yours look like? Mine is a saltine cracker with um, almonds on top. Almonds on top. Is it sweet? Ooh, it is sweet, but it, it's definitely a saltine. Oh, or yes. like, but it's like definitely a, a saltine. It's actually kind of a mix between a saltine and a Ritz. Oh, oh, I like the way this chocolate smells. All right, this immediately <laughs> tastes exactly like two Ritz crackers smashed around some chocolate. Mm. Uh-huh. Not Ritz. Mm-hmm. No, 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 not Ritz. It tastes like those town crackers. Oh, oh like the the club crackers. Club crackers, mm. exactly. That's what in it the green like. box. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're mm-hmm. right. That's exactly what mine tastes like too, with yeah, the hint of almond. Yeah. Big fam. Yeah. No, the chocolate's a lot softer than I expected. Jonathan, are your almonds like crispy or crunchy, or are they just kind of like no? Nope. They look like slices. Super thin slices, and okay. uh, you can't even taste them. Hmm. How hard did you expect the chocolate to be? Um. Harder <laughs> than this. I don't know. Um, 
What is I didn't expect mean? it to be soft like Oreo cream. It's I mean it's it's essentially like the same kind of like an Oreo middle, but it's chocolate. So I gotta ask: Is the Korean chocolate different? Can you tell the difference between Korean chocolate flavor and American chocolate flavor? I don't yeah, think I'm a, a chocolate connoisseur at a level where I can determine that at all. Same. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, even I though say I want chocolate European, and everything, but <laughs> I want to say European chocolates are creamier. I feel like um, some Korean chocolates are less sweet. But, that was um, going to be my one thing. I think yeah. some Korean chocolate is less sweet. Mm-hmm. I actually appreciate that about Korean desserts in general. Is there less sweet? In general. And and then you eat a corn dog and they put sugar all over it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I don't know why that why that had to happen, but So Sarah has a ninja creamy. So we have a lot of like homemade ice cream. And this chocolate smells like the chocolate that we make, which I think might be from like kind of a powder or like a mix or protein powder, maybe. I don't know. It seems like artificial in a way that like other chocolatey things seem less artificial i don't know what i'm talking about i'm just saying it smells, it smells familiar it smells artificial it smells just, like an artificial chocolate okay so okay. do you guys know what is artificial is chocolate not from a cacao bean <laughs> oh okay i don't know you know how korea has a lot of packaged processed foods i wonder mm-hmm. if they're worse than american processed foods meaning meaning from a health standpoint um, i feel like they gotta be i don't know Anytime I eat ramen, I'm like, this can't be good for me. Yeah, the sodium content of that. I mean, why is there so little obesity in Korea? You go walk everywhere. Yes, I was gonna say because they walk everywhere. <laughs> and in, and from in the summer months when it is oppressively hot, you sweat it all. Well, actually, no, they weren't sweating. I was the only one sweating. I don't know. <laughs> Great question. Maybe. Maybe there's a lot of processed food, but they just eat it in less quantity. Because usually, what I do I think is a quantity situation. Quantity sure. control is definitely different. Moderation. I mean, just look at yeah, moderation. The the portions are smaller. I just wondered if they had some laws on the book that required even the processed food to have less. Mm. I don't know preservatives or some additives that wouldn't necessarily yeah. be healthy that they allow in America. I don't know. It's a good question. I if hey, if anyone knows. The Korean FDA, <laughs> let us know because I'm curious too. If uh, I don't know, maybe they just eat more at home and cook themselves. At least that's what my family did. I I feel like my family always was cooking at home instead of like yeah. actually eating out or buying processed foods. So oh, for sure, because I feel like we we are much more fast food culture, more on the go, and so I think that's kind of maybe serves yeah, yeah. our obesity there, but. As I had Taco Bell tonight for dinner, so I am guilty of that. <laughs> nice. But all right, ratings, Jonathan. How do you how do you rate your uh, almond cookie cracker? Is it on a scale of one to ten? One to five. Yeah. However, you, however. One to five. I would give this a two point eight. Two point eight. Two point eight. Slightly Slight. above middle, huh? Yes. Wouldn't buy it again. Would not buy again. Well, I am sorry you had to buy a whole box. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Six more packs kids, to go. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you have kids. Uh, just tell them it's amazing. Tell them it's a five out of five. <laughs> yes. The greatest snack ever. What would make it better for you? Uh, less town and country cracker tasting. I mean, it's interesting. On the box, it says to pair it with wine. I have no idea mm-hmm. how this would ever go with wine. It oh. tastes like a town and country cracker with Almonds. I don't know. 2.8. Almond cracker with a Pinot Grigio. Yeah. Well, there's probably like some meats and cheeses uh, Maybe. out there yeah. with the with the crackers as well. Uh, mozzarella, tomato, <laughs> and <laughs> a glass of wine. All right. Okay. Mozzarella, See? tomato, glass of... Okay, so just like a... A caprese you know, salad. Cap- caprese? Yes, thank you. Yep. Crazy. I had no idea. <laughs> but I know right, what, about, what about you, Patrick, since you love chocolate so much and not the um, fake chocolate? I don't know. Honestly, <laughs> this, say you I'm going to give it, more chocolate. I, will, I actually was going to say that. Um, <laughs> I was going to say this is like a 2.5 snack for me. Like it is just, mm-hmm. it's mid. I'm giving mm-hmm. it a mid rating. It's literally mid because mm-hmm. I just feel like it's not. I had, there's another package in there. I'm like, I don't even know if I want to eat that. Well, maybe I'll eat it some other time. And normally, if it's good, mm-hmm. I would have already eaten it. You'd have already so, finished everything. Yeah. Yeah. So I wish it was more. I mean, I do like the cracker taste. I wish there was more chocolate. I'm not. It's very messy. 
and maybe that's just because it got shipped but yeah i don't know it's just like it doesn't stick out to me there's nothing astounding about it it's just fine so 2.5 hey tay there you go (laughs) sorry hey tay Right there with Patrick. I wish that there was more chocolate. It's almost it's almost to the point where like I either wish there was more chocolate or just no chocolate. You know what I mean? But like the amount that mm. that they gave, you're just like, what are you even doing here? Just get out of the get that out of the way or be more present. It's true. I it do was feel not that very chocolatey. You're right. So, but yeah. I, I love the cracker. I think it's really good. I've eaten two pack, three packets, but I think it's because I kind of accidentally skipped dinner tonight. So, <laughs> might just be more general hunger than like a real sure. staunch endorsement of this. Hey, taste sand ace. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it's fine. I probably like the other ace crackers. I don't even know if it's made by Hey, Tay, but we've had like some other ace crackers on the show that are also good. So, yeah, yeah. I'm going to say all that being said, I'd give it a three. I probably like it a little bit more than Patrick, but not like not much more. That's not much more. I, I'm I'm kind of with Patrick. Two point five for me right in the middle. It's, it's good. It's tasty, but it's not something I'm going to crave and it's not something I'll probably buy again. But it, but it's decent. The cracker was good too, although when I taste those types of crackers, all I think about is like pairing it with cheese or something like that too. Like mm, I think I would have rather salad. Yeah, I would have rather had the cheese instead of the chocolate in it. So, <laughs> but you know, maybe a little slice of salami, some from Pepperidge Farm or something. I don't know. Does that go with uh, chocolate? Pepperidge Farms. No, with with crackers. Those crackers. Yeah, true. Yeah, not with. Maybe chocolate. it says on the packaging it's a hint of chocolate. And we just can't read it because you were saying mm-hmm. that it, it has just a little bit of chocolate in it. It so does have just like, like a this thin little yeah, playful chin chocolate. <laughs> so maybe that is just like thin chocolate. I don't know. It's uh, like somebody put like a the chocolate spread on a knife and then spread it, but only like half of it got on this cracker. And then, yeah. then they squeeze some, the cracker on the top cracker. Some off. lazy factory worker was like, good enough. Yeah. Good enough. Move on. Some guy with a with the chocolate spread was just tripped over and fell on top of it. Come they on. did it and they looked at it and they go, yeah. and then they That's passed it. it on. I'll make it. That's fine. Now we're getting quota. into one of those. Now this is sounding like a Reese's peanut butter cup commercial where the two, the chocolate and the peanut butter meet. <laughs> and they, oh, hey, this is a product. All right. Well, good stuff. What? Jonathan, thank you so much for for coming on the show and for um, sharing all those details with us. We really appreciate seeing you again and also hearing more about your story and uh, you know about the tour as well. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's been great. You said that you're ready to connect and uh, share with people. How do people get a hold of you, get in touch with you, hit you up on Instagram if they want to talk to you? Oh, I, you're asking me to tell you my Instagram handle? I don't know that. If you want. Um, I, I honestly <laughs> yeah, Where have no can people idea. reach out to you if you want people to reach out to you? So I would say the, the fastest way to do it would be Facebook if you're a Gen Xer right. like me and actually is on Facebook. But Nathan's on there. Yeah, oh, that's where Jonathan and I were talking. <laughs> Facebook <laughs> Messenger. Uh, no, but I'm also on Cacao, and I don't, you know, it's under my name if they want to connect with me right. there and, and WhatsApp and some of the other. But there's not many Jonathan Brookstrom's out there, so you can locate me pretty easily. All right. I've Googled right. myself. There's not many. He's yet. the uh, Korean like, one. And he's he's the the say, if, he, if there are a lot of Jonathan Bergstrom's, he's the Asian one. <laughs> he is the Asian one. All right. Well, we'll link your Facebook in the show notes. And if we come across your Instagram handle, we'll put that down there too. Okay. Um, right next or underneath ours or wait, probably above it actually. I don't know what I'm talking about. Music <laughs> um, is precedence. It's okay. For anybody who wants to DM us, you can do so at John Chi Show on all those social media platforms. Uh, we would love for you to tell us all the different things that you thought about this episode. Uh, you can do so via email at johnchishow at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voicemail, of which we have many, at 972-677-8867. And I think that's all for contacting. Um, if you want to support the show, we'd love for you to visit our website, johnchishow.com. We have a store. We have the rest of the stuff that's on there. It's a super <laughs> fun, expansive thing. <laughs> so please check us out there. And last but not least, if you do feel so inclined and would like to leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcast, we would greatly appreciate that as well. I am at Patrick in the world, wherever I want to be found on the internet. I am also on Facebook, Nathan Nowak, and, and Nowak on Instagram. 
You can find me at KJ Relke everywhere I would like to be found. <laughs> everywhere he wants to be found, where I want to be found, where Nathan wants to be found. Oh, on Facebook, too, you can join Nathan in the John Chi Show after party, <laughs> which is still active, I there. believe. I don't know. I'm it's not still on there. Facebook. It's there. It's still there. Maybe not so active. I think the DJ we'll is exclusively playing Enya right now. So <laughs> perfect. That's, that's that's the vibe. All right. Well, that makes me not want to get back on Facebook. Michael W. Smith. Switch it. Michael W. Smith. I love it. Friends friends forever. Oh, yeah. I love it. That is a full circle moment here on this episode. Jonathan, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, my gosh. Mine, too. Mine, too. Yours, too. Yes. All right. Well, join Jonathan and Nathan in the after party to talk about their fir- your Michael first Michael w. w. Smith concert experience. <laughs> and until next week, we will be catch you right back here. And until then, John G. John G. Hey. hey.